Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series, Mysteries of the Kingdom, Dr. Newfeld is bringing us a message entitled, The Global Kingdom of Heaven. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When I first began to attend seminary back in those days, the church growth movement was all the rage. You know, church leadership for a great many people back then, well, it had nothing to do with learning Hebrew and Greek and understanding the historical background of Scripture, the grammar, the nature of the text, even the great historic doctrines of the faith. Church history was easily ignored. Church, for a great many, was all about marketing and learning how to package your message so that you could reach a certain kind of people that you were targeting and then meeting their felt needs. I never bought into that stuff. I reasoned that if the cause for the global growth of the church was due to clever marketing forces, then where was the Spirit of God in all of that? And where was the gospel? It all, at least in my way of thinking, was premised on a doctrine of human works and achievement and had nothing to do with God supernaturally breaking into our world. And and so I pressed my nose back into the biblical text and tried to learn the languages and understand the thoughts of God. I'm now at the other end of these things. I'm a great deal older now, and I look back on my years of service, and I've You know, I've been anything but perfect, but I have believed in a perfect God and in his perfect Bible. And furthermore, I have come to notice that the message of Jesus, the message of the kingdom of heaven, has has reached out into so much of the world, not through clever techniques, but in ways that, at least to me, are almost inexplicable. Of course, people were drawn to Jesus originally because of his miracles. I mean, that's undeniable. But Jesus was definitely not a marketer. You know, at key moments when it seemed that he was positioned for a maximum impact, well, what does he do? He withdraws to be alone, to pray, and to be with his disciples. On one occasion, he went to Jerusalem quite secretly. And at times, he even warned those whom he had healed to tell no one. We see that, for example, in Mark chapter 8, after he's healed a deaf and dumb man, he warns him not to tell anyone. Remember, if any publicity is good publicity, Jesus seems not to have gotten that memo. And then, of course, there is that moment recorded in John 7, verses 3 to 4. That passage says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds, his four brothers said this because they actually didn't believe in him. But they did think that if he's going to spread his message as widely as possible, he was going about it the wrong way. Now, we've been studying Matthew 11 to 13, a section I've entitled, The Secrets of the Kingdom. And we've looked at the objections people have had, or to put it another way, the reasons why some people didn't believe in him. The reason was that he had not up until then brought an end to evil. And then we saw that the Orthodox Jewish leaders believed him to be a a Sabbath breaker because he did not follow the traditions of the elders. And that now sets the stage for explaining, strangely enough, the beginnings of Jesus' global and unstoppable ministry. What he was doing might have been bad marketing, but it really would lead to a global movement. So let's begin to read Matthew chapter 12. I'll start reading verses 9 and 10. 
He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Now, Matthew doesn't locate that incident for us. Where did it happen? Well, he doesn't say. But he does say that he entered their synagogue, which must mean a local synagogue in one of the villages of Galilee. Now, in the original Greek, this this little passage is quite stark. As Jesus enters the synagogue, Matthew simply says, Look, a man with a withered hand. As if, oh no, look now, here's trouble. The same Pharisees who were earlier that day accusing Jesus of, of being a Sabbath breaker. And now, oh look, this controversy is about to get ratcheted up. Oh look. But rather than simply waiting to see what he would do, the Pharisees seize the initiative. They ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, clearly, the the previous debate about whether it was okay to strip heads of grain and eat them on the Sabbath is anything but resolved. Perhaps, they say, you could get away with plucking heads of grain because your men are in great need and they need to feed themselves. I mean, that was an act of mercy. It was an emergency. But as is clear, this is anything but an emergency. This man has been this way, we assume, for some time, and no emergency exists. He could get healed on the next day. Now, according to the tradition of the elders, the rabbis would have allowed for a healing on the Sabbath if a life was in danger. And that is clearly not the case here. And what's more, Matthew adds a juicy little tidbit. He says the Pharisees were looking for a way to accuse him. And as anyone who carefully reads Matthew knows, the religious leaders were looking to build a legal case against Jesus in order to put him to death. And Sabbath was an important issue. And that's because Exodus 31 verse 14 says, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Anyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Now, that's the drama. And that, I think, is why Matthew begins with, Oh, look! Well, indeed. So let's keep on reading. Verses 11 to 12 records Jesus' response. Notice he doesn't cringe or say, Oh, dear, what am I going to do? Instead, he seizes the initiative back as he has done before. So the text says, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, this is a remarkable response. I mean, Jesus is saying, so your Sabbath law states that you can't help a man unless his life is in danger. But apparently, no such law exists over sheep. And of course, Jesus is on solid biblical ground. Now, the reason for this illustration is because the Pharisees had in the past used Deuteronomy 22 verse 4 as part of their Sabbath laws. That passage says that if you see your neighbor's ox or his donkey fall down, you're not allowed to ignore it. You have an obligation to help your neighbor and the animal. And if it's an obligation, well, then it must also be an obligation on the Sabbath. Now, just as an aside here, not every religious teacher agreed on that interpretation. There was a monastic community in the desert near the Dead Sea, and they were called the Essenes. And the Essenes taught that if an animal was dying in a ditch or a pit, you were forbidden from helping that animal on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees, while they were were more liberal than the Essenes on this matter, they thought Sabbath was not violated by helping an animal. So Jesus clearly knows his audience, and he also knows their theological discussions and their decisions. And so he uses the illustration that they've already agreed upon in the past. 
And so using their own conclusions, he asks them, which is greater, an ox or a human being made in the image of God? And which is a greater tragedy? Think about it. An ox in a pit or a man with a lifelong disability that would probably prevent him from work and from dignity? Answer that, he demands. And then he doesn't even wait for them to answer because really no answer is needed. And now for the second time, he has pointed out their hypocrisy. Why wait for a convoluted answer? And so instead of waiting for an answer, he simply turns to the man and he says to the man with a crippled hand, and here I'm reading verses 13 and 14. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Well, now, even with a death plot underway, yet still, Jesus has theologically argued the Pharisees into a corner, and he has also established that he knows far more about Sabbath than they do. And with that, he's also established that he is on lawful grounds to enter any Jewish synagogue on any Sabbath that he chooses and to heal anyone in that synagogue who's sick. You're aware of the audacity of what he's doing. See, on the one hand, you might say, well, Jesus has just signed his own death warrant because if he persists in this kind of an activity, he will be in violation of the perceived Jewish law and the whole thing is going to end badly. But on the other hand, this action will have made him the most sought after teacher in any local synagogue on any Sabbath in all of Galilee. I mean, anywhere he would have gone, the place would have been crowded out, standing room only. It's as if, if you think about it, this is the most brilliant marketing ploy he could ever have entertained. But it turns out he's not really interested in marketing at all. And even though he's interested in showing compassion to a man who's been impaired for a lifetime, and he's just given that man his life back, and he's demonstrating how how merciful he is, even so, Jesus is also interested in something else. And we're about to find out that he withdraws from the action. How will you begin 2019? And when the year comes to a conclusion, what will you look back on to know that you've earnestly pursued God, you've witnessed his power, experienced his love, and declared his praise? Well, Back to the Bible Canada is a Bible teaching ministry not intended simply to change minds, but hearts, and to call God's people to live lives that glorify Him. This new year, we continue to search out God's will and purpose to embrace new opportunities for declaring His word of truth and freely share Bible teaching resources that engage the mind, heart, and spirit. Our prayer is that you would journey with us with your prayers, your encouragement, and your financial support. Together, working to share God's word of truth and life. Call us today with your gift or for more information about all the ministry resources available to you, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm reading Matthew 12, 14 to 16. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Let's be clear. 
one would think that a man who heals people of lifelong disabilities also has the ability to protect himself. And so since Jesus is aware that the Pharisees are conspiring as to, as to how to kill him, you might think that he's got something up his sleeve. I mean, after all, he has the crowds on his side and he has the power of God to back up his claims. Time for a strategic step forward. Well, instead of doing that, he makes what we might call a strategic withdrawal. Since the Pharisees are conspiring, he retreats. Now, I see a pattern here. And if you think about it, you should as well. You know, back in chapter 11, we saw Jesus performing many miracles, and yet John the Baptist is left in prison. And that's to say, Jesus was healing the masses, but yet he doesn't lift a finger or perform a miracle to rescue John from that power-hungry Herod Antipas. Well, eventually, Herod would execute John, and Jesus would do nothing to intervene. And now in this incident in Matthew 12, we find out that this, is, this, this not only applies to John, but Jesus also applies that same methodology to himself. Here he is in danger, and what does he do? He withdraws. He doesn't fight. He withdraws. But while he withdraws, Jesus is not done ministering. Many people were following him, and, and Matthew says he healed them all. I hope you see we're right back to this important insight that we have called the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has come resulting in mercy, in forgiveness, in healing, in the blessing of God. But evil is not being opposed. Jesus is withdrawing. That's the mystery. But at this juncture, Matthew steps into his own narrative because he knows this is the time to explain what's going on. So I'm reading Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now, before we look at the details of that quote, if you've listened to this series on the book of Matthew, I have said that Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. And the purpose of Matthew's books is to show that, that Jesus is the hope of Israel, that he's the Messiah, the long-awaited king. He's the fulfillment of the hopes of the Old Testament. And so Matthew quotes from the Old or the First Testament more than any other. And here's the kicker. Of all the times that Matthew quotes from the First Testament, this right here is his longest quote. Matthew quotes all of Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. Now, if you go to Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, you're going to notice that the wording in that text and Matthew's quote is, in fact, different. And the reason for that requires a lengthy explanation, and I won't give it here. Suffice it to say that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives his own translation of this text. But he also wants us to see why Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4 is so important at this moment in Jesus' ministry and the ministry decisions that Jesus is making. I mean, that's to say that Jesus is not responding to the opportunities that he sees, but rather he's responding to the direction of Scripture. That is, Jesus is not marketing his ministry. Rather, he's deeply grounded in the Bible and in responding in obedience to the Word of God. Now, if you know the book of Isaiah, you will know that after a long series of prophecies that include the denunciation of Israel for all of her sins, 
Isaiah then moves forward and sees beyond the days of condemnation to the days of grace. Isaiah 40 begins with these beautiful words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That is to say, after the Babylonian captivity, God will send his servant to Israel and he will be tender. He'll be kind. He will end her warfare with God. Now, of course, Matthew's not quoting Isaiah 40. He's quoting Isaiah 42. But that's the context. And in Isaiah 42, we we have a chapter that begins, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. You know, readers of Isaiah immediately perk up. Behold my servant. Ah, the theme of the servant of the Lord. And by the time we get to Isaiah 53, we've heard of the servant of the Lord multiple times. But there in chapter 53, we find that same servant despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, Isaiah would say, we are healed. But in the early portions, that is in Isaiah 42, where Isaiah begins to talk of the servant of the Lord, Isaiah speaks about the unique mission of the Messiah. And Matthew, who picks up on this, explains it to us. According to Matthew 12, verse 18, the servant of the Lord will proclaim justice to the nations. That is to say, the chosen one, the one who has the spirit upon him, the one who's altogether pleasing to God the Father, the one who's without sin, is the one who will announce the reign of universal justice. Well, good then. Then don't retreat from those heretical Pharisees. Announce justice to them. Transform Israel and then proclaim justice to the whole world, isn't that what the Messiah is supposed to do? But Matthew would have a stop here and say, ah, but you haven't read the rest of Isaiah 42, have you? And so then in Matthew chapter 12, verses 90 to 20, Matthew shows us that Isaiah said that the servant of the Lord would not quarrel or cry aloud or be shouting noisily in the streets, sparking a mass demonstration. Ah, yes, the part about speaking gently to Jerusalem. But more, Matthew points out that Isaiah said the Messiah would not break a bruised reed. So what does that mean? Well, around Israel, in the marshes and in the ditches, there were plenty of reeds growing. There's no end to those. And then when musicians, for instance, would make a flute out of a reed, well, they would bypass every defective or every bruised reed. They, They were looking for perfect reeds, but not the Messiah. He was specializing in bruised reeds. That's why the man with the withered hand was healed. The same is true of smoldering wicks, which were no good in lighting a candle. The Messiah would never put out a wick that had trouble in working. And there's the point. If he wasn't throwing away the defective, the sick, the desperate, the sinful, the demon-possessed, and the condemned, well then, how would he bring justice to the world? Indeed, the people who followed Jesus were, well, let's face it, they were lawbreakers and people who had forfeited the favor of God. But the Messiah, well, here's the question. How does the Messiah bring justice to the Gentiles while he keeps gathering this mass of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks? And if one continues to read through Isaiah 42, we hear of the Messiah opening the eyes of the blind and turning the darkness before them into light. The deaf and the blind, says Isaiah, will be able to hear and see it. It's glorious news. 
But Isaiah 42 also says, indeed, right before it promises that the eyes of the blind will be opened, it also says that he, the Messiah, or the servant of the Lord, will be a light for the nations. The mercy of God would not just be for Israel, it would be global. It would reach a great many people. And from Isaiah 43, we learn that it comes from all of the nations of the earth. That's why in Matthew 12, 21, the end of the quote from Isaiah 42, Matthew keys in on the promise that the day of mercy is going to continue until the Gentiles are brought in. You know, it may be that the Pharisees have already rejected him and, and they're seeking to kill him, but the servant of the Lord has his eyes on a much greater prize, not just taking on the Pharisees, but the salvation of the world. And this is the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. The great king will not bring in justice until the full number of Gentiles comes in. He's going to be patient with cracked and broken and bruised and ruined people. He's going to gather in a company of men and women greater than any of his followers had ever imagined. Justice won't come until the mission of mercy is complete. And that is the mystery of Christ's kingdom. And that's why he's not brought injustice and evil to an end. That's why in the present hour, he will allow the the Pharisees to plot against him, even to conspire to kill him. For in doing that, they will fulfill Isaiah chapter 53. But that means practically things may seem confusing. For a time, the Messiah will seem so powerful in bringing mercy and grace and go to the most broken of people. You know, I was in a garbage dump in Cairo years ago, and I saw a great many people who had been won to Christ, people who gathered the garbage. And yet to the centers of power, well, they paid that no mind. Is that bad marketing? Well, perhaps it is. But that, my friend, is the wisdom of God. John, a thought that comes to mind is, you know, the church goes through all these seasons of how we conduct ourselves. Uh, But I wonder, how do we keep ourselves grounded in the things that God would have us do? You know, Ben, I'm, I'm uh, interested in uh, constantly bringing the church up to date, like worship music that, you know, reflects, you know, the, the contemporary understanding of what music, you know, ministers to the soul. So I'm, I'm into that. But I think we need to be careful that in our innovation that we continually go back and settle on those things that Christ has given the church. And I'm going to say uh, the preaching of the word and that it is, you know, expositional, that it reflects the text and that we concentrate on the power of God and the wisdom of God and not the power of man. Always ask that question. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our continuation of Mysteries of the Kingdom right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. A special thank you to all those who graciously supported the Back of the Bible year-end campaign. Your gift in December is critical to launching the ministry into the new year. It supports the daily program, all of our online and print ministries, and the privilege we have to support Bible teaching internationally, and so much more. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, in doubt, and the entire ministry team here at Back to the Bible Canada, a huge expression of our gratitude. Thank you for allowing this ministry to engage more people in more ways with the truth of God's Word in 2019. 
lives are being changed, and you play an important part in all that takes place. If you'd like to continue to support the ministry or would like to know more about all the resources available, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.